special to be able to preach. Do you know, I, I get to preach often, but it, the, the, the privilege isn't lost on me every time I, I get to preach. And most Saturday nights, I lie uh, in bed going, have I done enough? Have I worked it out enough? Have I made sense of it in my head? And um, today is no different. I really do hope that we can kick off this series in a, in a really amazing way. Um, it's called This Is Us. And really, we're looking for the next couple of weeks at what makes us us. And I'm not going to be describing what makes us us because we as leaders went away and had a kind of blue sky moment and thought about what makes us us. No, no, what makes us us as we look at the scriptures? What makes a church fundamentally a church? What makes our church a church? If you drill deep into the core of who we are, what are you going to find in there? We had some uh, people over at our house trying to fix something, and uh, he pulled out one of these drills. You know those, like, they're super large drills that, um, almost like a cylinder, and they drill. And he was drilling this hole into a wall, like about, I don't know, five, six centimeters diameter. And I just started watching this guy drilling, and I almost wished I could be doing it. And I couldn't work because it was so loud. And uh, as he's drilling, you're just watching the different colors of the wall starting to change and pop out. And the dust goes from the color of the paint to the color of the cement. So it's going from white to gray. And then suddenly some red starts popping out. And you're getting deeper and deeper into the wall. And they, they made a hole all the way through. And you got to see all the different colors as the rock uh, in the, um, the brick kind of turned it black. And you, you're going right into the heart of what's in this wall. Much more exciting than digging into a wall. We're digging into our church. We're digging into the essence, the core, what makes us actually tick. Who are we fundamentally? So I want to show you a picture, and I want you to guess who you think this person is. Whisper to the person next to you. Who do you think that person may possibly be? Any guesses? Anybody want to shout out who they think that person might be, even if you know? My father. That is my dad. What gave it away? Was it those beautiful blue eyes? Or that stunning smile, that warm, friendly face? I don't know what makes you think that's my dad, but that is my dad, John Cecil Haynes. He is an absolute legend of a man. What's the marking feature about my dad? His smile, okay. Let me tell you what the marking feature about my dad was when I was 16 years old. You've got to go a little higher than a smile. Above his nose, above his eyes, but below his sunglasses. It's shiny. It's bald as you can imagine. When I was 16 years old, I looked at that head and I thought, that's where I'm going. <laughs> That's my future. And I was convinced that that was the story of my life. And I love my dad. Everything about him is really solid. I just, we, we, he's a fantastic man. But that's a problem. <laughs> that's a problem. There is a genetic defect that he was about to download into my life. And it was so bizarre that as a 15-year-old, I found myself thinking, this is terrible. My future is doomed. And I spent more time than you can imagine worrying about that. It, it's, it's so ridiculous. Uh, and you might laugh at me and think, Rod, you're an absolute moron. I can't believe that that got you worried. But it did. 
It really did. Now, don't get me wrong, there were times I thought about other stuff, but I spent too much time thinking about that. Way too much time. So you can show the next photo, that's my dad and I. When he was that age, he was already had as much hair as he has right now. <laughs> and what I found out, and please don't correct me if you're a medical person and I'm wrong, but what I've heard is that the bald gene comes from your mother's side, not your father's side. And if you look at my mother's line, there is no baldness to be found anywhere, just thick mops of hair everywhere you look. Now, imagine I'd known that when I was 16 through 24, when I was so self-conscious and worried about what people thought and worried about my future and, and spending unnecessary amounts of time in a story that wasn't true. What could I have spent my fear-filled energy on Doing? What could I have done that was just potentially so much more useful with my life and my time than being afraid of a future outcome that was never going to happen? And I suppose when I talk about today, this is us. What we're talking about today is that we, first and foremost, are a gospel-defined community. We are fundamentally defined by the gospel. The gospel is a story about something that has happened, something that is happening, and something that will happen. And what happens when you believe the wrong story about your life is you spend unnecessary amounts of time and energy worrying about things that are never going to happen, that are not most primary. And you know, regardless of whether I was going to or will go bald, it may still happen, and then you guys can bring up the story and have a good laugh. There's a story that transcends our biggest fears. There's a story that shapes our identity at such a deep level that it changes the way we view some of our deepest fears. You see, we as a church, and I want to suggest to you today, are defined by the gospel. That's our primary identity. That's where we as individuals and we as a group of people find our identity. Now, identity is a massive conversation in our generation, probably bigger than ever before. Identity is causing some of the greatest fights in homes, in relationships, in politics. You just need to watch what's happening in politics as people fight for their identity. And what's emerged is that we used to have a kind of biblical view of how we de derive or find identity and there has become a new kind of modern way by which we find identity. Let me show you how we discover identity these days. Next slide. Next, oh, sorry, next, next. It goes like this. You see, in the modern world, you achieve your identity within. You spend some time soul-searching. You find out and discover who you believe yourself to be. And then you come out to the world and you say, this is me accept me. And you stand on whatever platform you possibly can and look over at the watching world and you say, accept me because I have found out who I am. Whether it's the sexual identity, whether it is an identity in any other form, we run to the world and say, accept me. The Bible teaches a different method. The Bible teaches a different way of identity. The Bible says that together, the people of God receive their identity as a gift. It's not achieved by searching deep within and saying, now I have found myself. There is an identity that is received from God by sheer grace. 
It's given to us as a free gift from God. That's how it goes. And then we walk into the world and we don't say, accept me. We walk into the world saying, I'm already accepted. And it's a game changer. It's a game changer because we're not fighting to be accepted. We're walking into the world as a group of people who know we have been accepted. And we walk into the world saying, hey, brother, sister, you're already accepted. Now go live into that identity. Go live as the son, the daughter of God. Go live as the one who is seated in heavenly places. Go live as the one who is loved by God and cherished. You are already accepted. You are not standing on a pulpit asking for acceptance. You are a person who is already accepted. Ephesians 2 verse 1 to 10 talks about the beauty of this gospel that we speak of. And I want to read it to us now. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is God's word. Father, as we unpack your word and discover that the church, this church, is a gospel-defined community, I pray that it would be more than a theory, it would begin to shape and define who we are. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can we put up that slide around definition and defining and identifying ourselves? We probably all have a little bit of the top one in us. We, 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 we're all told, be authentic, be yourself. You can be whatever you want to be. You know, you just believe in you. That's the mantra of our society. And so you can achieve your identity within yourself. And then you go into the world and you say, this is me, like it or not. And the world more and more is applauding, going, well done. You've discovered yourself. Now, let me tell you that that's not all entirely wrong. Hey, you want kids to grow up confident, to, to know that they're loved, to be able to love people and to have a kind of self-confidence. The problem is this, is that it's not primary. It's not the most fundamental thing about us as a church or you as a person if you're a follower of Jesus. You see, if you're a follower of Jesus, you may have different identities. You may have a whole bunch of stuff that marks your life your personal struggles as a child, your potentially your struggles within you, maybe even your sexual orientation and the, the temptations that you feel towards different people. Here's the thing that the gospel says. The gospel doesn't dismiss that and say, that's not true, that's not what's happening in your life, those aren't your desires. The gospel comes and says, there is a greater identity. There is a transcendent identity that comes upon you regardless of who you are and how you feel that tells you that despite all of that, you are loved. 
You are a child of God. You are cared for, and you've been given a brand new identity. The scripture talks about the fact that you're seated in heavenly places, that you've been made uh, one with Christ. So we're defined by the gospel. Here's the thing. Which gospel? There are varying kind of differing options to believe about the gospel. Maybe distortions of the gospel is a good way to describe it. I think of how people, some people, when you think of the gospel, they subtly think of what's called the gospel of works. Since Adam and Eve, since the very beginning of time, some people have subtly believed that the gospel is basically about doing the right stuff at the right times. We're all really bad people who don't deserve God at all. Pretty cool, that's true. And, uh, and you know what? If you just do better and your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, you're in. That's the gospel of works fundamentally. Just try not make any mistakes to not disappoint God any more than he already is disappointed with you, and it'll be okay. It's called the gospel of works. It's got always, every gospel is blended with a bit of truth and a subtle lie. This one is the lie that if you just do more better, you'll be okay. The other one is moralistic therapeutic deism. Big mountain of a, of a term. Here's the thing. Moralistic means live morally right. This is what most adolescents, if you get told, you ask a 16-year-old who doesn't know much about Christianity, say, what is Christianity about? Uh, 3,000 people were surveyed in, in the States, and this was what essentially came out of the study. Moralistic, be a good person. If you want to be a Christian, essentially being a Christian is about being kind and nice to people. Don't be a, a, an unhelpful person in society. And then secondly, therapeutic. Really, your life is about your own personal happiness. So you must be a good person, but, but you must always do it to make sure that you're happy. And deism means there is a God out there who is interested in your life, but only really when things are going pear-shaped. If it's not looking good, hey, call on the big guy upstairs, and he will come and be your cosmic therapist who will just help you through this difficult time. And besides that, you just keep doing you and stay happy. That's moral therapeutic deism. There's one other gospel that I think uh, feeds well into the South African and especially Capetonian world. It's the gospel of the good life. The gospel of the good life that God fundamentally just wants you happy. And so he wants you to do whatever is going to help you feel really happy. So you make sure that you wire your life. I mean, of course, you want kids to succeed, so you better get them into the best schools. And, and you need a career that's going really well, so you need to prioritize that. And of course, you want your marriage to be pretty good if you're married. If you're single, you need to have some relationships. doesn't matter if you push the boundaries in any way you need, as long as it's the good life. You've got to stay fit. So hey, at, at whatever expense to relationships or even church, you've got to get out there. You've got to get on the mountain. You've got to get uh, whatever you need to make sure you are living the good life. And essentially, God is there to deliver the good life. He's there to make sure that you are enjoying it. See how all of them have a little bit of truth and are a little bit mixed and blended with untruth? John Tyson and Susie Silk describe the gospel in a paragraph like this. The gospel is the good news that God our Father, the Creator, out of his great love for us, has come to rescue us from sin, Satan, death, and hell, and to renew all things, 
in and through the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf to establish his kingdom through his people in the power of the Spirit. This is for God's glory and our profound joy. Let me unpack that for a moment. If we are defined by the gospel, what exactly is the gospel? Firstly, the gospel is news. We don't get to shape the gospel or tell the, the, you know, the gospel what it needs to be. It has already happened. It is a story in motion. You don't get to tell the news writers what happened yesterday in the news. You get to read it. And the Bible is clear that the gospel is first and foremost news. N.T. Wright writes a book, Simply Good News. It's simply good news. You don't get to shape it. All you get to do is either believe it or not. And the good news is this, is that God in Jesus Christ has revealed himself to be heaven and earth's true king. And in a mighty act of deep and sacrificial love, he has poured himself out to redeem us from all the perils of sin and Satan and death so that we can live again and be part of his renewed kingdom in this planet with the age to come in mind. The age to come has started in Jesus Christ. The news has happened. The question is, do we believe it? It's news that of something that has happened. It's news about something that is happening, that Jesus is still at work. And it's news about something that will happen, that Jesus, in fact, is coming back. And at the interim stage, we're in the overlap of the ages, where his kingdom has started, but the present evil age has not finished. That's why we're not surprised by all the mess that we see around us, inside us and outside us. It's all over. It's news. Secondly, the gospel is about God. Oh, sorry to disappoint you. The gospel's not primarily, in the words of Rick Warren, in his first line of his famous book, The Purpose Driven Life, it's not about you. Let's say that a little louder, come on. It's not about you. She, you guys are asleep. It's not about you. Thank you, I needed that reminder. It's not about me. It's not about you. Verse 4, God says this, but God, but God, this thing was heading in a terrible direction until God, but God in his amazing mercy interjected into human history and turned around the course of history and has brought about a radical change in the outcome. He is bringing about his kingdom and his purposes. It's a story of God. You and I are made to have relationship with God. The world is made not to enjoy creation primarily, but to enjoy the creator through creation. It's a giant magnifying glass to see who God is. And we tend to take that away and just try to look at self. Thirdly, the gospel is infused with power. It's infused with power. It's not like, you know, hearing the news that there's a new president in Papua New Guinea and you all go, oh, nice to know. Is there really? Who cares? This news is news that shapes everything about how we live, how we view the past, how we view our present, how we view the future, how we view our money, how we view our, our relationships, how we view our marriages, how we view our singleness, how we view our sexuality. Every single thing is encapsulated in this, and there is power in the gospel to inform all of that. In verse 5 and 6, it says, He has made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And it says, And raised us up with him and seated him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 
Romans 1 verse 18 talks about the fact that uh, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. This is a message of immense power. We shouldn't think of the gospel like our newsfeed. This is a whole nother dimension. It's got the power to take a 20-year-old lying in, the, in a tent, thinking about Jesus and realizing his life is a mess, and God can enter into that place and turn a self-centered, selfish person into a person who realizes he's not made for him, he's made for God. Who stops worrying about becoming bald one day and starts wondering about how to live a life that pleases God. It can turn around a marriage. It can turn around a business. It can turn around our view of how we see the world. It brings life and spaciousness into who we are. Next, it's holistic, kind of ticking on from what I've just shared. It's not about getting people into heaven. So often when you hear the word gospel, you think, oh, tell that little message. If you grew up in a place like I did, tell a message to get someone to heaven. That's what you think of when you, you think of the gospel. Share the gospel. And, and, and that's not entirely untrue. It's just such a small version, such a small part of the gospel. When Jesus prayed for us, he said, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The message of the gospel is about Jesus having his kingdom breaking into every aspect of our lives, the boardroom, the bedroom, the courtroom. Every single part of our lives should be filled with the gospel message, infused with life. One of my saddest pastoral conversations I've ever had was when a guy who I knew uh, fairly well, he actually studied theology. How sad is this? And he's about to go through a divorce he need not have gone through. Beautiful wife willing to accept him, forgive him, love him into his future. And he looks at me and he says, you know what? Even if this is a bad idea, even if I am wrong, one thing I know is that I'm saved and I'm going to heaven when this thing's over. You know what? There was this weird part of truth in it that may, he may or may not be right. I, I don't want to comment on that. But what was so grievous about that situation was this, was that he didn't understand that God had power for him right there. God cared about this marriage that he had made vows to those years ago and that this was a story that he was a part of that God could have given him power for. God cared about the whole of his life, not just getting him into heaven, not just some sort of bizarre fire insurance for what happens when he dies. It's a trust. The gospel is a trust. When you believe the gospel, you get given a trust to steward. This is not some sort of light-hearted message that you get and you can do with whatever you like. It is a trust. Verse 10 says, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're entrusted with a new way of living. We've been given the Jesus way. And through the gospel, we get to follow Jesus into his way. It's a trust. Uh, Paul writes in, in Corinthians and he says, we are like jars of clay with treasure inside, the treasure of the gospel, and we're called to steward that treasure as best we can. And then finally, it's the definition of love. The gospel that is to define our community and to define your life is itself the definition of love. This is important, listen carefully, because we are finding love has lost its definition. Love has become a word that has been contorted and twisted to define whatever you think love is. But that's not true. Verse 4 says, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. 
God comes to show us in Jesus Christ what love actually is. You might think it's that. You might think it's pure tolerance and just accepting everyone just as they are. You might think it's actually about harsh truth and correcting everyone as they are. But you know what? The truth of the matter is, is that in Jesus Christ and the gospel, that's where you'll find your definition of love. We don't get to say what our preferences of love ought to be. We get to learn what God has defined love to be. And we are defined by that. We are defined by the message of God's love. Jesus full of grace and truth. How do we work that out? We take a lifetime asking God for wisdom on how to do that. One thing we are is we're defined by the gospel. If you're a gym, you're defined by health and beauty. Maybe a bit of the bottom line, trying to do a business. That's, that's what defines a gym. You want people to be healthy. You want them to be, uh, you know, look good if that's their primary thing, and you want to make a profit. If you're a school, then you're defined by education. And, and, and helping kids thrive. No education, no school. It's not a school, it's, it's something else. It might be a place for kids to come together. No education, no school. No health and beauty, no gym. It's, it's, it doesn't fundamentally exist without that. If you're a business, you're trying to provide a service and you're trying to make a profit. That's what businesses are about. No service and no profit, no business. Doesn't exist. You wanna be the church? You are defined by the gospel. You're defined by this single message that God created the world, that actually humankind have turned their backs on him and have rebelled and said, not your way, but my way. The story carries on in that God has provided redemption in Jesus Christ. It is the mega theme of human history and that he is coming to restore all things to himself and we will live one day in a kingdom that is everything we dreamt it should and could be. We're defined by that mega theme. So what does it mean for us? Let me land with three simple thoughts. Firstly, the gospel should define our reality. So many things that could define our reality. A balding father, for example. But more fundamentally, the stories you tell yourself. The things you believe to be most true about the world in which you live eventually define what you think is most real. We're defined by a creator God, a fallen people, a redeeming God in Jesus, and a restoring God is coming to bring it all together. Whether it's your ailing marriage, your disappointment that you're not where you wish you were in life, you're called to bring that reality under the gospel and to find yourself seated under it, realizing this gospel, that I am now loved by God, that I am seated in heavenly places, that I'm called to community, that I'm defined by God's love for me, and we are called to be the kind of people that defines our reality more than anything else. Secondly, the, the gospel defines our behavior. We're going to preach a whole week on what it means to be formed into the image of Jesus. We live in a culture that loves to cancel people. It loves to tolerate everyone at the same time. I don't know how we're going to pull this off in our generation, but there are two big words. We get to cancel everyone when they do something we don't like, and we're called to tolerate everyone, and that's not going to work out. We're in a weird social experiment. But we're not running off the same song sheet. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're called to a whole new way. You're called to the way of Jesus. 
You're called to the way of love. You're called to love everyone individually just as is best in that situation because Jesus has given us wisdom filled with grace, filled with truth. We're called to be a people who are changing more into the image of Jesus, becoming more and more the kind of people who have the fruits of peace, patience, love, joy, kindness. The list goes on. Are you becoming that? It's your greatest gift that you can give to people around you that you can give to God is a transformed life. The gospel defines our purpose in life, both as a church and as individuals. We spoke about this, and so I'm not going to go into great detail, but our purpose, we believe, as Common Ground Church, is pretty simple. We're a community who's called by God to fill our hearts and our, our world with the life of Jesus. That's what we're called to do. That's our purpose. We didn't make this up. It's all over the scriptures. Fill our hearts, transformed by Jesus, and fill our world with the life of Jesus. But how are we going to do that? We do that through being with Jesus, being in his presence. You can't possibly think you're going to do that unless you're learning to live with Jesus. And then, like we said, to become like him. That's formation. And then to love like he loves. That's the mission. That's what God's called us to. A gospel-defined community is a community who is all about presence, formation, mission. Becoming the kind of people who laugh and love all the way to that. Becoming more and more like that. Maybe the band can come up. This week, Monday was a big day for me. It was a big day for our family. You may notice Nix isn't here. I'm going to join them in KZN. And um, Nick's is there. Nikki's grand passed away on Monday. 91 years old, nearly 92 years old. She lived a beautiful life. She was a remarkable person. She lost consciousness probably two hours, three hours before she passed away. She was never really unconscious besides that moment. She was so healthy and, and lived a beautiful life. And, and one of her marking features through many, many obstacles and difficulties was that she was a woman of faith. She was a woman, as we're talking, defined by the gospel. Monday was a big day because not only did we get news of that, but I got news of some of the brokenness in my own heart. I had an amazing conversation with a friend who called me um, not long after getting news of Nikki's grand's passing and got to console Nick's, but then I also had a call and my buddy was talking about how he personally was facing some of his own personal struggles and realized, and he said these words, he said, I realized that 20 years after following Jesus, I still look at a beer and think that thing can save me. That thing's going to give me the relief I need. And I pulled over because I was, I had my earphones in, it was all legal, but I pulled over because I couldn't drive and listen to that at the same time because not I wasn't shocked <laughs> by what he was telling me I was shocked by how true that was of me you know sometimes somebody confesses something and and suddenly you go that's me and I realized that in my life there have been times and and even through the December holiday I found myself going you know what I know I, I love Jesus and and I there was no debauchery there was no drunkenness but I found myself looking at those beers and looking at those drinks and going that would provide the relief my soul needs right now I'll tell you this not because there's some sort of 
uh, miracle of God saving me from some debauched life. I tell you this because so many of us live thinking that something else just on the other side of that will save us. We don't have the courage to be honest enough to go, actually, this is the fact. This is the fact. You've got a pastor, you've got a person next to you who often believes lies about what's actually going to save them, what's actually going to provide the thing their soul most needs. And today, I want to remind you that it's the gospel of Jesus Christ and nothing else. Nikki started sending me some photos of her grand's uh, journals that she got to read, and some are appropriate to share, and I want to share these with you. Just two quick pages. First one says this. 92, by the way, 92 years old. Barely has the strength to write. Very challenging sermon on stewardship. She got to church last week. Very challenging sermon on stewardship. At 92, she found the strength to keep journaling and to keep being challenged and to keep letting a message that she's definitely heard at least once before. But she heard a very challenging sermon on stewardship. Give thanks to the Lord, she says. His love endures forever. She keeps writing, stay close to Jesus. Pass on what God wants us to do. It's our responsibility to build his kingdom. This is seven days maximum before she passes on. What are you going to be writing in your journal? Will you have a journal at 92? And will it matter as deeply? Will it be as defined by the gospel as this? The next one, oh, and, and, and carries on by the way, it says, uh, Layla's birthday. <laughs> she knew so many people. It also says load shedding, processing load shedding. <laughs> Then she says, God bless you with the armor of God. I'm not sure if she's praying for Layla or the load shedding. God bless you with the armor of God, the shield of faith. Stand, she says. The power of God. Put on the armor of God. Be alert, she says. Must I remind you, 92? <laughs> Be alert. How's this next one? Rest from the toil. Move on to the next place. Sail off to the haven called heaven. A greater life awaits beyond death, home and eternity. Lord, help me to face death quietly and with courage. 92. We've got many decades. This is gospel defined. This is what it means to day in and day out say the big yes to the biggest story. Let's stand. Father, there are so many competing stories. There are so many things that want to tell us what matters most today. There's so many things that want to tell us that our career and our kids and our companion for the future or our companion for the present is what matters most. And in the gospel, we find that it is our king that matters most. 
that we're made for you. And we don't know how many days or decades we've got. But today we start freshly to say we want to be, if we're not already, defined by the gospel. I want to give you an opportunity. Eyes are closed. I want to give you an opportunity to to do one of two things. Firstly, maybe there's some of us here who just realized today I am saying a fresh yes to being defined by the gospel, not the other stuff. The other stuff will come. You've still got a career. You may still have kids. You may still need a companion. Those things won't disappear. It's what's most important. You've been following Jesus, but there's been other primary defining features. Today, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to invite you to pray with me to refresh yourself, to reboot around the gospel. Then there's others maybe who are saying yes for the first time. It's your opportunity today to turn around, to join the story of heaven, to join the story of God, to say yes to receiving his amazing forgiveness and starting this life of following him. I'm going to give you opportunity to pray. I'm not going to ask you to uh, come up to the front or do anything like that. I just want to ask you to respond in your heart. And I want to ask everyone to close their eyes. And I am going to ask you to be courageous because sometimes the popping up of our hand is our way of saying by faith, I'm in. No one else is watching, but God is. And, And I'm going to open my eyes and I want to pray with you. If you're in either of those two categories, I want to ask you now to pop up your hand and say, pray with me. Thank you. See those amazing hands. Beautiful. Thank you, Lord. You can put your hands down. God, you've seen hands popping up all over the place. But you don't see hands. You see lives and children that you love. And you today are calling us to reboot ourselves around the story that matters most. The defining story. Not our fears of the future, but the promise of an eternity with our King. A lifetime of love. Lord Jesus, this morning, I ask with the help of your Holy Spirit that you would refresh us, that you would reboot us in this story, that we as a church would not be defined by anything or no matter how good it may be. We're not defined by preaching. We're not defined by worship. We're not defined by anything else. We're not defined even by our relationships. We're defined primarily by your gospel, your good news. Oh, Jesus, thanks for your love. Receive this song as an opportunity for us as a community to say, define us freshly in your gospel. Let's sing.